welcome. It's indisputable. I'm your host, Rashad Richie. Good to be with you. We have a lot on the agenda today. Breaking down news of the day, none other than the big homie, Jeff Wiggins, Rebel HQ contributor and host of We Gonna Be All Right. Always a fascinating breakdown. First story of the day, another discriminatory practice, another discriminatory act against a black woman because of her hair, it now pays out $800,000. Let's put up this example full of mass. You see, that's a hairstyle. That hairstyle is typically worn by black women. A company decided to fire a black woman because of a hairstyle like that. We have laws against these things now. Let me give you the background. Here's the company she worked for for a brief period of time called Dynamic Security. A black woman has now been awarded $800,000 after she was fired over locks in Montgomery, Alabama. Davida Key filed a lawsuit after she was fired from Dynamic Security after being told that she could not wear her hair in locks back in 2017. Key says she was hired by Dynamic Security to work at the Hyundai plant as a clerk in the mailroom. During her interview, she was told that her shoulder length locks did not, did not violate company policy. After beginning work on July 31st, 2017, with her hair styled the same way it was during the job interview. Ms. Key, Key claimed that after she advised a supervisor and a manager, Gloria Robinson and Maurice Shambliss, that she was pregnant and provided a doctor's note clearing her for work without restrictions, she was informed that she could now not wear her hair in the locks. Ms. Key says, that despite her offering to wear a hat or change her hair, she was terminated days later and told it was because she was unwilling to abide by the HEA dress code. Her termination came from another manager, Ms. Cassandra Williams, who was advised about her pregnancy. So what's happening here? So the company thought they would be slick, right? They said, okay, we're gonna tell her this is about her hair. And we're going to put on record, this is about your hair, even though she was hired with the same hairstyle and the policy uh, talks about length of hair rather than hairstyle itself, all right? So they thought they could bypass some legal dynamic or legal issue in the future because they did not say, hey, this is because you're pregnant and we don't care about motherhood here. So it seems more efficient to say, well, this is about the dress code. It's completely out of our hand. Massive backfire. There's more. About 10 to 20 minutes after Ms. Key gave the doctor's note to Robinson, who had since returned to the office, she shared with Williams. Williams came out of the office and had a question for Ms. Key. What's wrong with your hair? The lawsuit reads. Williams then returned to her office without saying more. Key then began 
her training for the job, but was interrupted an hour later and asked to go to Williams' office where she was told, hey, your hair is an issue now. About an hour into the training, Shambliss retrieved Miss Key from the mailroom to meet with Robinson in her office. When Key arrived, Williams and Robinson began questioning Miss Key about her hairstyle. The suit continued. Williams and Robinson responded that while it might comply with Dynamics' personal appearance standard, her hair did not comply with HEA's standard. Key was let go after only two days on the job and filed a lawsuit against Dynamic Security for violating the Civil Rights Act of 1964 pursuant to pregnancy and race. There's more. When I think about my hair, that is racial, she said. That is my hair. It's my race. That's who I am as an African-American woman. The texture of my hair is like this because I am African-American. This is the texture of my hair. And the reason the texture is like this is because of my race. She added that the uh, that she only filed a lawsuit as a last resort. I did that after speaking to them and feeling like my voice was just not heard and I was not taken seriously. Um, her attorney, uh, Leslie Polymer, noted that the federal law protects black people from being terminated because of their hair texture. Wearing an afro is protected, said Palmer. The circuits are split as to whether dreadlocks fall into texture or style. You have what's called competing rulings in the federal court. More than 40, more than 40 local governments in 20 states have already enacted the Crown Act, which expands protection against black hair discrimination. But Alabama is not one of them. The jury sided with Ms. Key after a three-day trial and awarded her $800,000. She was there for two days, okay? You gotta understand, racism will cost you money as an agency. If you do not provide a structured approach to get rid of racist elements inside of your agency, then whatever comes is on you because leadership would dictate, you understand that there are racist components in America and some of those racist components may trickle into your agency when they do. When those decisions are made, especially by mid-level and high-level management, you have a systemic and cultural racist problem at your business. Two days. And now the company will pay $800,000 because of their own malfeasance. And here's the thing. She waited a while before filing the lawsuit, and you have to file at some point just to retain the ability to be heard in court. Statute of limitations do apply in civil suits. So she attempted to have a conversation. What did she say? My voice was not heard. My voice was not heard. It would have been simple to have a conversation, understand the sensitivities that were violated and try to move in a way that at least showed this woman, you believe she's worthy of dignity. But because you did not, you gotta pay out damn near a million dollars because your management thought they were being slick. 
All right, Jeff, thoughts on this? Big homies in the neighborhood that I grew up with was simply saying, it's cheaper to keep her. The Vita <laughs> King right. not only deserves every penny of this money, but she's right. This is an issue with an African-American hairstyle because of African-American texture. That texture being almost exclusively 4C hair texture for black people. If people don't know what 4C means, look mm. up the Andre Walker hair yeah. typing system. It's right there. With all that being said, this story reminds me of all the times that I hear from people who don't like affirmative action. One, they neglect to mention the fact that affirmative action benefits a lot of different races in America, yep. not just black people. But then there's this. There needs to be a, love, uh, a way to love the playing field because there are black people who, if you have a black sounding name, you can't even get an interview. And clearly, if you have black style as far as, far as hair or texture, you may not even get in the door. So this discrimination is costing companies, and I'm glad it is. And I'm glad her pockets yep. are lined. Hopefully, we can give her back some dignity and she can get some gain, uh, gainful employment in the future. Because, I mean, look, my name is Jeff Wiggins. It's European. <laughs> I never had to con uh, you know, consider that. But being a black man with 4C, uh, 4C hair, I never had to think about that either. So black women, we need to do better by them. Very well said, dear brother. And we will follow this uh, because the company itself uh, should enact a program, establish a method to make sure this doesn't happen to anyone else. A teenager shot, killed by the police. Video just coming out. Here it is. He's pulling off. I stopped it right before the gunshot started. Put up the pictures full mass. Let me explain to you what has happened in this country. See that young black male, 17 years of age in Greensboro, North Carolina. The young Nasanto Antonio Crenshaw was gunned down by an officer with the Greensboro Police Department while fleeing a traffic stop August of last year. You see, they did not immediately give us access to this video. We have it now. Let me give you first the police account of the shooting. According to the Greensboro Police Department, the teenager, Mr. Crenshaw, was driving a stolen vehicle when he was stopped on West Market Street. They said two other teenagers, ages 17 and 15, were riding inside of the vehicle. Greensboro Police say as officers approached the car, the young Crenshaw took off. When the vehicle was stopped for a second time, several teens jumped out and ran away. WRAL News has been told 
while police were trying to detain the other passengers in the car, Crenshaw hit the gas, ramming a patrol car. Police say he hit the gas again, and that's when he was shot. So I'm going to give you the screenshots. And the screenshots indicate the three shots that were fired at the team. So each screenshot represents another shot at the team, okay? Now, according to the police, they were shooting in these scenes. Why? Because obviously their lives were in danger, okay? What danger do you see? Let's put up the mother, okay? It's always the mother. Crenshaw's mother, who obviously is uh, distraught still. It's not something you just get over. Her name is Waquita Doherty. Miss Doherty told WRAL News that she doesn't understand why they had to use deadly force. And she says her son was unarmed. Why couldn't you shoot out the tires? Why couldn't you throw down some strips? She poses those questions while crying. Anything besides shooting him dead. That's what you did. You shot him dead. I mean, them just facts, end quote. Let me give you the dispute over the vehicle even being stolen. The vehicle was called in stolen, okay, by a Fort Bragg soldier who did not want to be identified. Miss Doherty says Crenshaw, the 17-year-old, told her the soldier had loaned him the car. Crenshaw used the car to drive to Greensboro with a group of friends from Fayetteville, but did not return in time, according to Ms. Doherty. The mother said that the woman was upset with the young Crenshaw and called the police and reported the car as stolen. The soldier told WRAL News a different side of the story, said that Crenshaw stole her car and she did not give him permission to drive it. Now, naturally, this is something that really may not be argued. Why? Because the person being accused is dead. That's why. This possibly could be very true. But once again, the courts may not be the adequate place to weigh the evidence because the individual, once again, being accused of stealing the vehicle is no longer here. There's more. Let's put up the lawyers who are representing the family. Crenshaw's family, they're being represented by nationally renowned civil rights attorneys, Harry Daniels, John Barris, as well as Shamika White. They all filed a federal lawsuit in connection to the killing. They put the following statement. Uh, we got an email this morning from the law firm. It says, District Attorney Avery Crump and the Greensboro Police Department have hidden the truth for long enough. But now that this video is public, it's undeniable. Even after they have tried to put their spin on it, the facts are clear. Corporal Sletton's life was never in danger. Nasanto Crenshaw, the young 17-year-old, was never a threat. He was scared, he was unarmed, he was running for his life when this officer gunned him down and killed him. The wheels of the car were clearly turned away 
from Corporal, Corporal Sletton. And he simply wasn't in the car's path when he fired the shots. The front of the car had passed when he fired his second, and the car had passed entirely when he fired the third shot, killing the young Nisanto and barely missing a 14-year-old sitting on the passenger seat. The corporal and district attorney may not know the difference between a passing car and one trying to run you over, but the people do. Mm. Prosecutors charge killers every day across America with less evidence than this video, but apparently district attorney Crump thinks a badge is a license to kill, end quote, from the law firm. Let's put up the people supposedly in charge. Your DA, Avery Crump, and Greensboro Police Chief, John Thompson. Let me say this. When I received this story and I was looking over the elements of the video, as well as the commentary from the attorneys, from the law office, I remember when I was a teenager, I remember being inside of a stolen car. I remember going to juvenile because we got caught. I also remember I never thought I would die or be shot and killed by the police if I got caught. I always thought the worst thing that would happen to me is I would go to juvenile detention. And now these young black males who are truly, truly authentically afraid they run away, no threat, no weapon. The police officer gets to become their judge, jury, and executioner. See if you're okay with this, because it's not you, or it's not someone who looks like you, please understand, this isn't just about race, this is also about what they perceive as influence and class. You see, they think it's status. And so they perceive you, regardless of your race, to not have a particular status, they will try this on you too. They've been indoctrinated to believe they can get away with certain things. Many cops engage in this kind of senseless activity on a regular basis and we never get to expose them because it is successfully covered up. This is outrageous. Everyone should be on the same page, regardless of party affiliation and race. <clears throat> All right, Jeff, thoughts here. A teenager, a black boy, was so afraid of what might happen to him if he were arrested or caught by a police officer that he decided to flee for his life. And the very thing he feared is what ultimately happened to him. That's going to sit with me. Yep. for a while and i think it actually should going back to the police officer and the idea of shooting to kill whether or not your actual life is in danger is such a loophole that i'm not even sure there's anything that we can really do about it because it kind of seems that like ahead of time he knew all he needed to do was say that his life was in danger and that will rectify any decision being made thereafter. So yep. I am truly disheartened for that family, their friends, the mother, that mother nailed it. There's a there's many things that that officer could have, should have done instead of 
taking out that child's life, including if holding a gun, shooting out the tires. But that's where we are in this country. Yep, there you go. We will follow this story naturally, bring you updates as they come. Cops decide to accost a man, physically harass. Why? Because he had the audacity to record them from inside of another building. I kid you not. Here's a video. Michael Luna was eating lunch with his daughter when they noticed a large police presence outside. They noticed the police were attempting the arrest of a homeless man and began recording. I'm within the distance. Michael begins to walk away from the scene, stopping to film the inside of one of the patrol vehicles. Oh, are you me? taking pictures of our car? No. Hey, I'm a person monitor. No. You're, you're taking you're pictures the, of our car. Hey, 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 hey. Hold on. 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 The violent arrest, ordered at the whims of Deputy Carlos, left Michael with massive contusions and abrasions, all for recording through a window from a public place. We actually have more video of what happened next. Here it is. But Michael Luna, the citizen journalist, was charged with obstruction. Deputies took him to the hospital, but only briefly before transporting him to a sheriff's station where he was kept for several hours and interrogated. When Luna was finally released, he went back to the hospital where he was treated for contusions to his arm and a sprained shoulder. Luna recently spoke about the experience on a YouTube channel called The Junkyard News. I heard something pop in my shoulder. Yeah. You, know, he, you know how they do it. They, they have to run. I'm an old guy, fat. But yeah, you know, so he, he did it and he popped it. It popped. And even in the video, you hear, you know, me telling him, you pop, you know, my shoulder popped. As of this video, the obstruction charge against Luna remains, even though legal experts call it unfounded. Luna now has a GoFundMe page to raise money for his defense and for a civil rights lawsuit he is preparing. Okay, let's put them up. All right, uh, and by the way, great reporting by our dear friend, David Schuster. According to the man's GoFundMe, the incident involved the Temple City Sheriff's Department on Friday, December 30th, 2022. You're looking at Deputy Carlos and Captain Mark Reyes. Over, they oversee the department according to the post. Let's put up the GoFundMe of the victim. This is Michael, all right? Now, this never should have happened to him. I encourage people, let's keep that GoFundMe up because I would love for you to help this man if you are able. Um, I often say on this show, record. If you see something, record. Everybody who knows me personally, if you ride with me or I ride with you, there's one rule. When we see someone being pulled over, when we see action from a police officer as it relates to a citizen, we are going to stop the car and we are going to sit and record every time. Wherever I'm going, they will understand why I'm going to be late. That's how important it is. You know why that's so important? 
is fundamental to transformation. Dr. King created a strategy in the 60s. He said, I have to get this evil in front of everybody in order for America to be shamed into changing. And that's what he did. He engaged in a strategic operation to transform policy and thus transform this nation. We have something Dr. King never had, the ability to self-publish. We all have a cell phone, virtually everybody. And when they start doing things like this, trying to intimidate you from exercising your actual right to record a government worker, it tells you what they're trying to do, hide things, hide things. Now, yes, you may be criticized for being woke, okay? They may call you all kind of names. Please keep in mind, the only people that will criticize you for being woke are those that would prefer you be sleep. All right, Jeff, thoughts on this. I'm not even going to look up L.A. or California law. I'm pretty sure people are able to record from their phones at a safe and considerable distance when police activity is going along. And I want to point out that the officer decided to arrest and ask questions last. I didn't know it was unlawful to not only record, but record inside the cop car. There was no request to have that man stop recording or back up a few, few feet again. It was arrest ask questions last. And the reason why, to go off the point you just uh, made, and it was very well put, the reason why we need to record instances like this is because of the previous story, the Santo Antonio Crenshaw. Instead of having to rely on police body cam footage, it would be great for also someone to have another vantage point so we can see that, and we don't have to rely on the police to delay in giving us the body cam footage. We can see it immediately and know what's going on because we know every day that the police will lie in uh, in order to cover their own butts. There you go. Well said. I thought Karen's were met on the internet, but I just experienced my first one in person. I have a black man hammering a white woman. He's been stalking me. I have a restraining order of John. This is his cousin. Yes. You're going away. If your mom bothers you, you tell him to bother you. No, I had a black man. He hit me four times. Black 
All right, I wanna highlight this from the perspective of the individual recording and the other passengers who were there. Uh, we don't know exactly what was going on with this person, obviously. We don't know if it was related to something else, if it's a mental health issue, we don't know. But we do know that's a scary position to be in if you are a black male, you're on a public bus and a white female is saying that you have assaulted her, that you are stalking her, that you have been harming her. You know why? Because we live in an era where killers who kill based on assumption of the facts don't go to jail because they can claim, well, I believed what this person said and because of that, I reacted. So that's the era we live in. People are getting away literally with murder because of narratives that are false. And these narratives are being utilized to justify evil behavior. So that's a scary position for somebody to be in. Now, the person recording, you did the exact right thing. You did not escalate, you did not try to combat the individual, you simply wanted to document what was happening. That was the right way to go. Others who started to notice, they spoke up as well. And then eventually she was told, you can hear the voice, and I think it was the, the operator, the bus driver, say, it's time to get off, all right? All right, Jeff, thoughts on this? Bus driver, anti-Karen, good job. And, and you know, Dr. Bishy, help me out. Have we finally reached a point where people can stop pretending that they don't see color? Like this is right, example right. number 4,080, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, when people say, I don't see color, first of all, that's the first indication that you're dealing with a liar. Unless they are actually blind. They see your shade of pigmentation. And to suggest that you don't see color as a way to uh, proclaim that you are not racist is not the way, is not the route to do so, mm. all right? That just tells me you don't give a damn about the biases that historically marginalized communities actually experience. You don't care about that because everybody should just be like you and not see color, all right? Something for you. Double dose. You don't need this either. I need it. You're not going to send it. It's I'm not. Good. And you're going to take this elsewhere. You're not going to have my stamp on it. Okay. You're going to take all this elsewhere. And I, I want you to call the police because I'm going to sit here and yell so you call the police. You got the And you won't get your Always tell me. I know. Yeah. I know. Record it. Record it. Let's put up the picture. 
uh, full mass. All right. So there's a part of me that actually understands. I've had to stand in lines at the post office myself. Okay. You got to stay strong, Karen. You got to stay strong. Um, obviously, something happened prior to the recording uh, because there was a reason they started recording. And according to the narrative, uh, this particular Karen in question was yelling. All right. And so they decided to not only record, but then deny her service. Um, this is not the way to make a government employee at a post office do a damn thing for you. They hold all power in that moment. All power. The power of the stamp. All right, Jeff, while I do kind of understand, you gotta be careful. I mean, Karens, you really gotta be careful in public places, but that Karen had no fear of actually being arrested. <laughs> None. Well, if this would have been the Bureau of Motor Vehicles or the Waffle House, it would have been dealt with swiftly. You know, you told the Karen to stay strong in these situations. And I'm like, man, if anybody's strong, it's the woman dealing with the Karen. Yes, she's Lord. got experience and she's got know-how and she is an expert. This wasn't her first time. So she's strong. Be strong like the anti-Karen, Karen. There you go. And I'm going to say this as a, I guess, a PSA to all Karens. The post office only hires anti-carrots. <laughs> That's it. It's a prerequisite qualification. Listen, we actually reported on this story first. All right. Brett Farr uh, stealing millions from Mississippi. That's according to many. That's according to many. All right. He has. Uh, been in the news, obviously, for it. We also talked about uh, the son of Ted DiBiase. Similar deal. Got a bunch of money from the state of Mississippi. Poorest state in the United States of America. Well, that son has been charged. Let's put him up full mass. So former WWE wrestler Ted DiBiase Jr. has been charged for his involvement in the latest and the largest corruption case in Mississippi, the welfare scandal, okay, misappropriated roughly $77 million to people like him. But the money was intended for low-income families. Let's keep his picture up. Ted DiBiase Jr. is a welfare king, okay? Deal with it. Court documents show that DiBiase, along with co-conspirators John Davis, Christy Webb, Nancy New, and others, obtained federal funds from the Emergency Food Assistance Program and the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, TANF, program and misappropriated the money for their own personal use. Once again, money for poor people in Mississippi, money for those who need it in Mississippi. Mississippi, already the poorest state in the country. The leaders are robbing the community. There's more. After these federal grants were issued, all right, Davis, 
the former executive director of the Mississippi Department of Human Services, would direct MDHS to subgrant the funds to the Family Resource Center of North Mississippi, Inc. FRC and Mississippi Community Education Center, which were two nonprofit organizations operated by Webb and New, respectively. There's more. Davis would then allegedly direct Webb and New to give money to individuals and companies through BS sham contracts. Okay. According to the Department of Justice, at least five of those contracts were for the company of DBIC, Priceless Ventures, LLC, and uh, Family or Familia Orientum, LLC. Diabasi's uh, company uh, were given millions of dollars in federal funds for social services and a few other things that according to the narrative, uh, they never provided it, did not provide and did not intend to provide. Now, why is that part important? The wording is really important. If you don't provide it, that's actually different than never intending to provide it. If you simply did not provide it, that's a different statutory element of the crime. Okay, because you can't prove malicious intent or fraud. If you never intended to provide the service, that means that your entire engagement was fraudulent. That's the difference in that language context, okay? All right, so let's put it up. I uh, got a press release. So according to a press release from the Department of Justice, uh, DiBiase allegedly used the money to buy a vehicle, a boat, as well as make a down payment for the purchase of a house, among other expenditures. The statement also reads, uh, DiBiase is charged with one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud and to commit theft concerning programs receiving federal funds, six counts of wire fraud, two counts of theft concerning programs receiving federal funds and four counts of money laundering. Once again, who are they stealing from? Poor people. What? Money is being allocated over 70 million meant for people in Mississippi who actually need it, who deserve it. Okay, there's more. Um, the brother, all right, this is interesting. Uh, Brett and father uh, Ted DiBiase Jr., uh, senior, were also allegedly involved. Okay, after federal audit was completed, uh, DiBiase was asked to return 3.9 million. Now that's a whole lot of money. Okay. That's a whole lot of money. While his father was ordered to pay $722,299. That's not chump change. Brett was asked to, uh, Brett was asked for $225,950, uh, but he pleaded guilty in December 2020 in state court for making false representations uh, to defraud the government and then pleaded guilty to a federal charge in March of this year. Now let's put it up because obviously this is probably the most high profile thing about this entire debacle. We're talking about the scandal of NFL legend Brett Favre. The Hall of Fame quarterback has not been charged, not been criminally charged, and denies knowing that the money he was receiving was in fact welfare money. Now, if you remember on a previous 
show, I actually provided the text messages that have now been made part of the public conversation, where it clearly shows that Brett asked the right questions. And the other individual who was part of the scheme, allegedly, provided the answers that made him feel safe because he wanted to make sure in these text messages that nobody could trace how the money got to him. Now, who in the hell would pose a question like that unless it is a drug deal or something corrupt? All right, Jeff, the plot thickens, but we actually covered the initial story when many people said, this is a big nothing burger. Now you have charges. And I'm glad you weave Brett Favre in and out of this story because he is somehow evading negative attention like it's a quarterback blitz and it's like third and long. Yep. This man is incredible. Now, while you were talking about much of this, a montage of the many times that pundits and politicians talk about black people abusing welfare and social programs and even going as far as means testing it, like food and other benefits, you have to have certain amount of poverty in order to get those things. All that flashed before my eyes while you were talking about the DiBiase's. And one thing I was just thinking about was like, okay, the DiBiase's bought a boat and a car. Can you imagine if a poor black family in Mississippi used that money that they deserve to buy lobster and shrimp? Yeah, there exactly. would be so much outrage. Like I, apparently when you're using these benefits, you're supposed to go to the bottom of the barrel and use, I don't know, modest amount of money in order to get modest amount of things. And so Yes, let's put the focus back on the DBIZs, and you did a great job of that. And, of course, Brett Favre. That's right. All right, we will bring you updates. Guaranteed, they are coming. Lawsuit claims that police officers actively discriminate against police officers. Wow, really? Let's put it up. The picture, New Jersey State Police Department. In the New Jersey State Police Department, led by Superintendent Patrick Callahan. They have now been accused of workplace violations from 17 former and current officers. In the lawsuits, they allege they experienced discrimination, retaliation, and harassment because they belong to minority communities. Allegations in a law firm's documents cites the lawsuit. The documents portray a work environment within the NJSP that promotes white men over qualified minorities, despite the former's histories of DUIs and harassment. The documents and the troopers described a workplace condoned by Superintendent Patrick Callahan, who was appointed acting superintendent in 2017 by former GOP governor, Chris Christie. I was nominated for the position by Governor Phil Murphy, a Democrat, in 2018. Let's put him up. So New Jersey Superintendent Patrick Callahan, despite criticism over his leadership in the past, uh, the governor, the Democratic governor, still supports him, okay? In the documents, Burnham Douglas, the law firm representing the troopers, cites allegations from those who experienced discrimination because of, because of their race, gender, or sexual orientation. The documents also show 
that around 84% of the 3,181 troopers employed by the NJSP are white males, white males. Even though the law enforcement agency serves one of the most diverse states in the nation, blacks, African-Americans uh, made up 15.3% of New Jersey's population as of July, 2022, that's according to the US census while Asians made up 10.3% and Hispanics and Latinos were at 21.5%. Uh, let's go to uh, Michelle Douglas, an attorney at the law firm calls the hiring and promotion of minorities at the agency abysmal. Brian Polite, one of the plaintiffs named in the lawsuit and the only black male major in the NJSP was bypassed for promotion and was the subject of racist remarks. Polite is the commanding officer of sections that oversee recruiting and the diversity and inclusion unit. There's more. Promotions were allegedly not granted to two openly homosexual troopers, John Hayes, a white male, and Jamie Lasik, a black woman who both sued the NJSP under the New Jersey law against discrimination. They filed their lawsuits after being bypassed for a promotion that was granted to a heterosexual, lesser qualified male because their supervisor told others, I'm not creating no lady blue and gold unit, and I'm not creating no LGBT unit, according to the documents. The lady blue and gold was a resource group of enlisted female troopers started in 2002. In a statement to Newsweek, Douglas says, and I quote, Imagine you follow the rules. You attain academic accomplishments such as a law degree, a master's degree, and PhD. You train, you score top tier in all testing processes. But because of your skin color, nationality, or gender, you're not promoted in the face of mostly white guys who get promoted above you, not because they earned it, rather, they belong to the same informal frat club, end quote. So well said and so spot on. Now, if they are engaged in this kind of discriminatory behavior internal of the police department, what do you think they do external of that professional industry? Mm. If they are engaged in this kind of extreme bias, prejudice, and racism among those who wear the same uniform and literally are supposed to be on the same team, how do you think they treat those who they deem to not be on their team? Your brother thoughts here. So, I mean, so much for merit. I thought they wanted the best person for the best job. Um, yeah, this is completely damning in so many ways that you outlined, but what that last officer said was spot on. He had that 100% correct. He knows exactly what's going on here. It's bias, it's discrimination, it's racism in the police department, indoors, outdoors, in-house, outhouse. And it's amazing how many teams there are among the police based on a lot of factors that we cannot control. Yeah, yep, there you go. All right, we got more on the other side. It's indisputable, stick and stay. This was a hell of a story. The police steal a protester's car, according to the protester. 
Here's the video. They're in your car? So they're stealing her car? After speeding off and driving like they stole it, because they basically did, they drive the car to the parking lot of a school, block off an entrance, and box the stolen car in with their cruisers, putting the car out of view. I don't know about you, but if my car was being towed and the police were involved, I certainly wouldn't want the cops moving my vehicle from its original location without my consent or getting inside my vehicle at all with the possibility of them tampering with or planning God knows what before the tow truck even arrives, especially when they didn't provide any paperwork documenting literally any of this. What is wrong with people? Like you just took their car and now they about to try to run off. Your bitch ass Now y'all wanna run off. Now y'all wanna run off. Get that girl her car back. Get that girl her car back. She got killed. Uh, she get that girl that car back. You're just gonna leave that girl stranded at the circle K. Get that girl that car back. Get that girl that car back. Get her car back. Y'all can't take that girl's car. Now y'all gonna run that man over? You can't take that man. After a wild goose chase, or should I say a wild hog chase, the cops are found in a third location with not one, not two, but three of our activist vehicles, and they're making multiple arrests, one being of a 14-year-old child. Targeting activists. Beautiful. Let her go! Let her go! That is a child! You're abducting a child! Why have you contacted For a police department that is supposedly understaffed and stretched thin, the Akron Police Department sure does have enough resources to harass, intimidate, and retaliate against community activists and organizers who've done nothing but try to hold them accountable to the bare minimum standard of not murdering people. Just That's insane, is it not? Shocking. Something like that would happen to anyone in this country. Shocking that any law enforcement agency would engage in such conduct, right? All right, so allegedly uh, this was during a protest over the killing of Jalen Walker. Uh, he was unarmed. They decided to release firestorm of bullets into his body, okay? It hit him over 40 times. Those bullets ravished his body. He should not have died. He should not have been shot. He should not have been killed. The people were protesting a righteous protest. I have never seen cars being stolen by the police. Never seen that before. That's a new one. Let's put up Chief. Buck stops with him. He's the man in charge now. Corruption is especially high 
under this particular chief. His name is Stephen Milet. Okay. He's the chief of Bellevue Prior uh, to Akron, and he is a significant reason why you have things unchecked in the police department. In a survey conducted by the city, more than half of the respond uh, respondents say they felt uh, less safe than before. Uh, this is what policing looks like under him. All right. Okay. Um, obviously, more information needs to come. We're trying to get more information established. More information. If you have that, make sure you get in touch with us at Indisputable. Jeff, thoughts on this? Yeah, you know, floating around Ohio, there's a bunch of videos of these same police, uh, the, the same police department in Akron, um, macing uh, individuals and pepper spraying individuals who seem to be peacefully protesting. I'll put that seam out there just in case there's something I missed in video. But there's a lot going on in Akron because the eight officers who shot at this man. I don't know, at 90 something times, we're let off recently. So there's a lot going on. Yep. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know the law. I cannot foresee any reason why the police would need to get in somebody's car and drive it away and put it somewhere. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, just weird and seemingly unnecessary, possibly criminal. It seems to be a heartless YouTuber, but maybe there's another side of the story. We'll get into it. Here's a video. Los Angeles, California has the third biggest homeless population in the United States. And today it's my job to make sure there's one less hungry person on the streets. Hey, excuse me, sir. Hey, I was wondering, are you hungry by any chance, man? All right, man, I got you. Would you like a Baconator, fries, a drink? Is that cool? All right, what's your name, man? Israel, God bless you, Israel. I got you, I'll be right back, man. Let's put up the picture full mass. Okay. YouTuber Trevon Sellers is being slammed for mocking homelessness in a now viral video. The video was actually posted last month. Mr. Sellers is seen in the video taunting what appears to be an unsheltered man in a parking lot by pretending to offer him a meal and then eating that meal in front of him. Viewers are calling him heartless, cruel, and sick for the stunt. In a post on Monday, responding to the outrage, Mr. Sellers claimed the man who appeared in the video was not a, was a friend, excuse me, was a friend, and that the entire video was actually scripted. It was not real, according to him. But viewers were not satisfied with the explanation. One person asked, what was the purpose of this video, even if it was staged? In the updated caption to the original video, Sellers wrote, I asked him beforehand if we could make this video, and he agreed to be in it. I gave him some money and food before we even started recording. In the latter part of the original video, which did not go viral, 
sellers returned to the same spot with another meal, but by that time or by that point, the man had left. Instead, he took the meal to another group of men beside tents on the side of the road and offered them the meal. The first person said, no, we don't want none of that ish, but another man accepted the food. Let's put it up. In the last year, the content creator has amassed a following of roughly 30,000 people posting videos of himself harassing the homeless and other members of the community. In other videos and posts and photos on his Instagram, he even dresses up as a homeless or unsheltered person and performs stunts uh, in public. Also, let's go to this part of the um, channel. It says, not a prank channel. It clearly is stated at the top of Mr. Sellers' YouTube page that it is not a prank channel, all right? Um, let's put this picture up again. You know, I was deeply saddened, dear brother, when I saw uh, this video. And even if you made an arrangement, sir, with the individual who has gone viral along with you, I would caution you in this way. Making fun of things that we should take seriously is never a great idea. Making mockery is always foolish. Instead of laughing, dear brother, how about you learn? The wisdom that human beings have, regardless of status, is something that should be cherished. I encourage you to utilize your platform to make a dynamic difference and actually become part of the transformation of the societal construct rather than a reflection of what it tells you you must be. All right, Jeff thoughts. I'm a YouTuber myself. I create content in order to gain an audience. It's not easy. My best friend is a stand-up comedian. The art of writing a joke and telling it is very, very difficult. So I don't know if him saying that his channel was not a prank channel is in and of itself a prank. I don't really get it. I'm not gonna tell him how to create that content. I will say that he is not apologizing. And so, as you just said, Dr. Richie, I hope he can learn from this and build and grow. I hope this man or this kid, I don't know how old he is, can build and become successful at whatever he does. But that wasn't it. Right, and uh, and and I, I will say this in parting. Uh, there are some people who deserve their dignity to be snatched from them. Uh, those who are unsheltered and not among them, right? All right. Uh, dear brother, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Tell people how they can follow you and check out your great work. Yeah, I'm on Rebel HQ every single day, and I have a YouTube channel called We Gonna Be All Right. Come and check me out. There it is. All right. Until next time, my friend. Okay. Bullpen is next. Stick and stay. Let's get it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the bullpen. In the bullpen today, we have someone who was incarcerated wrongly for many years, exonerated, not before he was physically attacked by correctional officers. On April 6, 2022, Sam Randolph was fully exonerated and released from Pennsylvania's death row after serving 24 years, 21 years, excuse me, for a wrongful conviction, a crime he never committed. 
after everything that happened to him, his dream and goal is to start a nonprofit, give back to the community and help other people. Despite being exonerated and released from prison, Sam is currently disabled and confined to a bed. Why? Well, correctional officers in a vengeful attack on May 18, 2009, while he was handcuffed, defenseless, was led into the yard. COs assaulted, slam, uh, assaulted Sam, slamming his head, then his body forcefully to the ground. Two guards fell on him and they crushed his lower back, injuring his spine. Due to this, he requires 24-7 care. Sam is a strong spirit. We have him on the program. Sir, good day. Welcome to Indisputable. Thanks for having me, sir. Brother, you have um, one of those stories where obviously you've had to overcome a lot, but a lot has happened to you and it should not have. So I would like you to give us your um, position, your point of view to the criminal justice system, what happened to you and why do you still have so much hope to give back? Okay, um, so my nightmare began in uh, 2001. Um, I was wrongfully arrested, incarcerated. Uh, my trial occurred in uh, 2003, so I sat out there. 2003, I had a two-day trial. I, I, I was just railroaded in two days. They gave me, convicted me of two uh, capital uh, convictions. In addition to that, they sentenced me to 58 to 116 years for crimes that they knew full well I didn't commit. They had the evidence of my actual innocence. So. From that day, I was immediately taken to uh, Pennsylvania's death row, straight from the courthouse. And um, so when I got up there, uh, the guards up there, they were just uh, extremely racist, abusive, and they, they constantly attacked people. Uh, I used to be one of the grievance filers and they filed grievances. That's how I became a target for them. Mm-hmm. You said they, they assaulted me. So I spent a lot of my days doing um, lawsuits, working on my case, just trying to get my evidence back into court. Uh, on, on death row, it's a long, tedious journey. The, the courts they move extremely slow at snail's pace, right? The case just drags through the courts. So as I was, uh, fast forward to a judge, he granted my federal habeas. It took a long time, but the evidence came out. The judge, the judge even told the uh, prosecutor, to turn over the uh, exculpatory evidence of, of my innocence, which they had all along. They tried to hide it, had Brady violations where the prosecutor was hiding that, knew that I was innocent. So uh, when I was finally exonerated, it took so long, but my hope is, bec- is because when I knew I had the evidence, and then when I finally got out and got there, uh, what I want to do and continue to do, like you said, is to reach back, because I know I left a lot of innocent people in there. It's, uh, mm. like, and I got a platform. I want to utilize that to reach back and help those that I left behind because sadly it happens far too often. Man, that is so powerful. Mm-hmm. That is so powerful, brother. So uh, habeas corpus, it, it basically means give me the body. Uh, it's when the government can look at evidence and the judge can say, listen, I can't overturn it, but I can get them out of this jail. I can get I can get them out of this facility. So that means the evidence had to be pretty conclusive. You did not do it. 
Absolutely. or something like that to be granted. How long did it take and what was the process to get someone to pay attention enough who had the authority to say, get him out of that jail? Oh, wow. So I, even though I had the evidence, some of the evidence that I had, it was DNA evidence in my, in my case, none mm -hmm. of it, me, they hid that. Uh, at the time that it happened, my mom owned a bar. We had a family establishment. It was a bar. I ran the day-to-day -day operations for my mom before and after the crime. So they knew where I was. Not just that. At the time of the crime, I was actually on the uh, phone. When the, when the crime was being committed, I was actually wow. on the phone. And they had the ping information identifying the location. They hid that. So I couldn't mm. get in court because it would show I was nowhere near the crime scene. Right? Uh, it was the dirty cops that paid people to lie and uh, uh, give false testimony and drop lots of charges just so they can give false testimony against me. And so once the federal judge seen all this stuff that was happening, he, he was so mad that he told the DA to turn it over rather than, to, uh, excuse me, with discovery, that discovery process. DA, he told the DA, turn all that evidence over. So the DA came back to court and said, uh, your honor, all the evidence was in my office, but we don't know what happened. The whole file disappeared. We don't know wow. where. Wow. Wow. He didn't want to turn it over. Mm. He just was so upset and frustrated with it because the evidence of my innocence was obvious, right? Mm. And uh, but this DA that was on my case, and it's a lot of DAs like this all around the country, just, just pure wicked. Just pure wicked. And, they, and, and he, this DA in particular has a pattern of practice. Of, of convicting a lot of innocent individuals, especially those that look like me, right? And no problem keeping me on death row. Children having to grow up without me, lost everything, my, my mom, and it was just crazy, especially when I when I got, uh, one time they signed my execution, gave me 60 days, to act, they were gonna execute me in 60 days. My mom seen it on TV and no one told her she had a heart attack. Cause they told she was watching the news and they said they was getting ready to execute me in 60 days, right? But it, 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 it's just crazy and it, and it happens a lot, so that's why I'm just want to continue to work and do what I can. You, know, you were exonerated, you were exonerated, completely innocent of the crime. Uh, the record has been set straight now. Obviously, they cannot give you those years back, they cannot give the years they took away from your family, they took away from your children, they can't give you that back inside of the facility you end up getting severely injured by the actions of correctional officers. Tell us about that. What happened? Uh, as you said, on, on May 15th, 2009, I was on my way to the, um, to the yard to exercise. Uh, so what they did is they handcuffed me behind my back and uh, on, on death row, we're isolated 24 hours in our cell. We only come out to go exercise five days a week. So as they was taking me, they was plotting, and as they was taking me through the hallway, that's when three of them jumped on me, assaulted me. And as they threw me to the ground, two of them landed on my spine. And as you're saying, so that's where the injuries are, L4 and L5 of my lumbar spine. I've been confined to a bed since. Wow. The, abuse, the abuse and torture didn't stop there. Once that happened, they really started torturing me. Uh, they left me in a cell from that day on. Uh, they force-fed me. They force-fed me 11 times. It was trying to kill me. They forced fed me 11 times in a three-day span. Instead of putting it in my stomach, they deliberately put it in my lungs and was oh drowning. Oh, my gosh. I'm handcuffed to a bed, shackled to a bed. And what they was trying to do, they kept telling me, we got something for you. We was going to kill you, right? And uh, 
So they did this. You can only force feed someone to preserve life. I was never on my deathbed, but they just went and got a, a secure the court order to force feed. And what they did, their plan was, let's kill him. Then we say we just botched, it was a botched procedure, but we had a legal order to force feed him. But they should have never forced feed me. And they did it 11 times in the three-day span. And every time putting it in my lungs, just drowning me, you know. Nothing is all on video, just pure wickedness in there. I want to do this. Put up his GoFundMe. There are a lot of bills. There are a lot of bills that you have accrued because of the action of these uh, individuals against you. Uh, for those who are watching, um, I would love for you to support the GoFundMe. Uh, Mr. Randolph, I have to ask you, out of the experiences, especially the one where they literally jumped you, was anyone charged with a crime? No, sir. Okay. Never charged. Never charged. Now, you, you became a target. I heard you say this earlier. You became a target because you were writing grievances. I know what that's about. It's a grievance form. It's a process inside of the penitentiary where you can literally uh, fill out the complaint. You're supposed to be able to have a safe and secure way to process it. Uh, this is to help with treatment of uh, those who are incarcerated because you have abuse happening from detention officers. What kind of grievances were you filing in? And do you think it was one particular grievance that made you a target, or was it simply the fact you were filing them at all? I was I was filing all sorts of grievances. I literally filed hundreds of grievances. Um, they rejected every single one of them. Um, so I would cite the retaliation, retaliatory abuse, uh, constitutional violations, everything that was going on that was occurring in there. And then, you know, I'll fully, fully exhaust those grievances. You got to appeal them. They're going to deny them. And uh, so they're worried about lawsuits too, right? Bringing lawsuits. Mm -hmm. And so what they do is they just, no matter what, is just deny everything, but you're still required to fully exhaust it through their in-house procedures. So you got to go up to central office that oversees that prison and uh, before you can go to the courts on it. And, uh, yeah. Yep. It's required. I, it's called exhausting administrative remedy. So if you don't do that part, you can't go to the next level. Exactly. And, uh, so once I once I fully exhausted those, went to the uh, filed 83 action, took the cases to um, the uh, United States District Courts, you know, with lawsuits. So what they did is uh, they try to they try to settle the lawsuits. I ended up filing uh, uh, several lawsuits. They when they, the ones that caught uh, for my injuries, they tried to settle it, but they just say we give you fifteen thousand. You have commissary money. But we're not gonna fix your back. Why would we do that? You're on death row, we're gonna kill you. So no, we 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 will settle it and give you fifteen thousand. Of course, I rejected that and I've been fighting, you know, my legal situation and my medical situation uh since they kept me in the the day that happened, they never took me out of cell again. I didn't have a shower in 14 years. They just kept me and let me languish and deteriorate in the cell. They wouldn't take me out. They would just try and make me lose my mind. They kept me permanently isolated. Sometimes in the windowless cell, I couldn't see outside, no sunlight or anything. Um, they wouldn't let me see my mom. They'd play games and tell my mom and family to come up there. And then they'd say, oh, he refused to visit. After my mom traveled miles, uh, they, you know, they played games with the mail. It was just, it was just pure torture and hell, you know, uh, over the years.
and uh, what they was trying to make me do is just, you know, go insane, permanent isolation. They use that as a as a tool of abuse as well. Never take you out to cell. You don't get a shower. They uh, starve me a lot. And uh, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even eat their food because they have spit in it or spray disinfectant on the food. Mm. And I had my own food in the cell at the times so I can get it. My mom send it. And uh All right, so we have a technical issue. Um, Sorry. Okay, all right, we're back. Go ahead. So, uh, yeah, as I was saying, they basically just kept torturing me and kept me permanently locked and isolated in a cell. I hear, I hear all of these obvious, obvious violations. No question about it. Has anyone from the federal government contacted you about any of these claims? to investigate any of these claims? Have you been contacted by anybody? No, no, sir. Okay. I'm going to send this interview directly to Senator John Ossoff. Senator John Ossoff has led multiple investigations into prisons all across America, and he's been able to uncover some of the same things you experienced. They have it documented. These things are happening inside of penitentiaries. Um, for your continued strength, your continued legacy, you would like to give back. And that's what you're doing. You're giving back. What is it that drives you to remain strong and committed to obviously an idea that's bigger than you? Um, I've been def definitely blessed with a uh, strong spirit, but, but this is it's just injustice, this fight and everything that we're going through. And um, it's the systemic issues, these issues happens everywhere. It's widespread. And um, I know it happens. And like I said, I left a lot of people there and I want to fight and, and, and reach back and try to utilize that platform so I can help everybody. But it, it, it's my spirit and drive and this this injustice that we're all facing here in this course and it's a lot so i, I want to fight it continue to fight against that and help bring people out of that system you know where it's happening and uh, i'm gonna continue to fight and do what i can and uh hopefully you know i can you know galvanize people and, and, and get people to don't don't wait till this injustice lands on your doorstep that's right you know fight and do something join this fight uh, with them alongside me, you know, so we can fight together, you know, before it even happens to anybody else. It's going to continue to happen, but we can do what we can, right? Yeah. 